Hello, friends. Welcome to our second part uh, of the October 30th podcast uh, for Trinity University. And we talked about Marx last time, and now we are going to deal very briefly with Friedrich Nietzsche. In part because Nietzsche is the father of postmodern philosophy. And this is a very trendy term that is postmodern. Uh, but like all such terms, it uh, is extremely debatable as to what it actually refers to. Last time we discussed the fact that modern, for many people, is a descriptor of all philosophy and science after the Enlightenment. Uh, and thus, postmodernity would be those things uh, that those philosophies and movements which come to pass after the decline of modernity, which begs a very uh, kind of an interesting question. How can you talk about uh, modernity lasting 100 years and then uh, postmodernity setting in? And the, the explanation for this is found in direct relation to the notion of progress that we talked about with regard to Hegel and to Marx. Because in the, in the 19th century, perhaps there is no greater concept in terms of guiding uh, thinkers than the notion of progress. We are always getting better. Uh, human nature is getting better. We are in a constant state of flux. Darwin has taken the cake. Uh, and so we, we can look around and see society, like human beings, evolving. And this works really, really well all the way up until 1914. And in 1914, uh, with the onset of World War I, which is the deadliest war that humankind had seen to date, and one between Christian princes, and one that utilized new technologies, and particularly industrial technologies, to devastating effect. Uh, up until then, we, the, the notion of progress works great. But then even a cursory look at the 20th century shows uh, the futility of thinking about human uh, development in terms of progress. We have World War I. Uh, then we have the Great Depression. We, then we have World War II. And as a part of World War II, let's also point out uh, that at the hands of the German nation, we see the most systematic uh, destruction of a people ever. We cannot look at any other event in human history and compare it like for like with the Holocaust. So for those who are who believed that human... Uh, sympathy and kindness was on the up and up, uh, as many did in the 19th century. The 20th century is an extremely sobering uh, reminder that human beings are fundamentally capable of extreme violence and brutality. So wh wh why talk about this? Well, when we look at uh, post-modernity, it looks at the dividing line between when progress was still theoretically an ideal and when progress is effectively thrown down off of its throne. So we might look at the 1950s and beyond as the onset of a particularly postmodern philosophy. Now, Nietzsche uh, goes insane in the 1880s. Uh, and there is some speculation that he suffered from syphilis and that his final breakdown was 
uh, his last. He was always a frail uh, person, had to, had to uh, convalesce in Italy after a number of uh, states of poor health, for lack of a better term. Uh, and so then he finally broke and spent the final 10 years of his life under the care of his sister. Uh, and she was not kind to his legacy and was a, a virulent anti-Semite uh, or someone who hates Jews. And so uh, it is largely to her, to her discredit that uh, Nietzsche's thoughts were then quite popular with the Nazis 50, uh, 40 and 50 years later. But what connects him with postmodernity is the idea uh, that most postmodern philosophers, and we're going to talk about them later in the, in the term when we talk about Camus and Sartre, uh, they are explicitly Nietzschean in their outlook. And Nietzsche himself, uh, if, you, if you even tried to read the Nietzsche piece, you can tell from the outset uh, that he, where he is coming from. And so we'll see on page 124, he is describing, he is quoting approvingly the, the, the quote of another, uh, another person when he says, quote, I became acquainted with Kant's philosophy, and now I must tell you of a thought in it, inasmuch as I cannot fear that it will upset you as profoundly and painfully as me. We cannot decide whether that which we call truth is really truth, or whether it merely appears that way to us. If the latter is right, then the truth we gather here comes to nothing after our death. And every aspiration to acquire a possession which will follow us even into the grave is futile. If this point, if the point of this idea does not penetrate your heart, do not smile at another human being who feels wounded by it in his holiest depths. End quote. And then he goes on to say that he likes Schopenhauer's philosophy because Schopenhauer basically says, "Hey, guess what? Life uh, is about nothing." You are a worthless, tr literally a worthless uh, cog in nature's machine unless you can gain some of the power or the life that nature offers. So in other words, what is the highest form of existence? It's that of the lion. The lion is an apex predator that enacts its will on the world around it. And insofar uh, as human beings are capable, this is what they should aspire to. That is to exert their power, their life, their will on the world around them. And so we're going to see this played out in a number of ways as we look at Nietzsche's aphorisms. Now, an aphorism is not completely unlike a parable. So, and that's the, that's the chosen mode of communication that Nietzsche uses. So he very rarely lays down systematic philosophical arguments and instead provides these word pictures, uh, these parables, these aphorisms. And it makes a systematic understanding of his thought a little more difficult, uh, but it also clarifies a number of things that simple uh, philosophical prose would not. One of the tools he uses is a mythical figure known as Zarathustra. And Zarathustra was actually a, the lead prophet of Zoroastrianism. But for Nietzsche, he is just a kind of cipher. He's a stand-in for an old Near Eastern prophet. Uh, and so he says a lot of things that, and there's a lot of debate about what the figure of Zarathustra does in Nietzsche's work. But um, one of his most famous books was called Thus Spake Zarathustra. And it was an extended account 
of Zarathustra's travels and the things that he says to people. Uh, and he says all sorts of weird things. And it's really hard to interpret even for the sophisticated Nietzsche reader. But it is in this context that we see his, his most famous God is dead comment. And we'll talk about that shortly. But in the meantime, I'll, as, you, as you read Nietzsche, hopefully as you registered the difference in the way that he writes relative to the way other people we've been talking about have written, uh, that didn't. But there are three things that I think we need to tease out about Nietzsche uh, from the selection that, we, that I assigned. One is the place of the individual. The second is the madman aphorism in which he talks about God being dead. And the third is the idea of the ubermensch or the overman. These are easily Nietzsche's most famous concepts uh, and the most formative on people that are going to use him in their own work and particularly these postmodern thinkers that we're going to talk about. So first, the place of the individual becomes paramount when we get to the, the 19th century in particular. We have seen the breakdown of things like reason and feeling as the criteria for what makes a meaningful life. And when we get to the existentialists, uh, of whom Soren Kierkegaard and Nietzsche are going to be the most famous, the idea is on the individual as the one who chooses. That is, agency is what uh, dictates whether or not you are, uh, what kind of life you are living. So uh, the idea of the individual is simply that there is no one uh, and nothing that can give life meaning other than what you choose. And this is, a, this is a kind of philosophical and largely secularized version of something that even Luther brought about. Uh, because in, when we talked about the Reformation, we recognized that Luther radically changed the way that people thought about uh, authority and how they related to God. And one of Luther's most famous ideas was that at the end it is only going to be the individual who stands before God. There is no priest. Uh, there is no group of people. It is the individual. And so by the time we fast forward 400 years, or rather 300 years, we see this kind of borne out as a secular concept that is the only thing that matters is the individual and their choice. And Nietzsche is going to take this up. And so when he is speaking about what makes for a good life, it is about the assertion of the individual will over against uh, other wills and even other aspects of the world. So we, if we don't understand this idea of the individual, then it's going to be very difficult for us to get a handle on what it is that Nietzsche is saying. So we'll see this on page 125 when he is uh, speaking positively about Schopenhauer's philosophy. And he says, This is how Schopenhauer's philosophy too should always be interpreted first of all. Individually by the single human being alone for himself to gain some insight into his own misery and need, into his own limitation. He teaches us to distinguish between real and apparent promotions of human happiness, how neither riches nor honors nor scholarship can raise the individual out of his discouragement over the worthlessness of his existence, and how the striving for these goals can receive meaning only from a high and transfiguring overall aim, to gain power, to help nature, and to correct a little of its follies and blunders. And so that's a direct quote from Nietzsche on Schopenhauer. 
But Nietzsche is going to be far more reticent than even Schopenhauer was to speak positively of nature. In other words, Nietzsche is going to say, yeah, it's not even about correcting nature. It's about asserting oneself over against everything else. So the individual is critical for Nietzsche. The second category is, or the second idea that we need to discuss is the madman. And this is perhaps Nietzsche's most famous aphorism. If we turn the page in our reading, uh, then we can see an excerpt from the madman. So again, in our reading, this is 126. Uh, And this is from Thus Spake Zarathustra, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps Nietzsche's most famous work. Quote, whither is God, he cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? And then skipping down. uh, Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead, and God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? And then he continues, and the madman looks around uh, and says, at last, and Nietzsche says, at last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke and went out. I come too early, he said then. My time has not yet come. The tremendous event is on its way, still wandering, and it has yet not yet reached the ears of man. End quote. So what are we to make of this? This is obviously one of, it's provocative in the way that it's written. Uh, so much so some of you may be familiar with the the Christian film, God is Not Dead, in which a philosophy professor, and I might add a really dumb philosophy professor, uh, requires that students say that there is no God in his philosophy class. Uh, But it's an open question what Nietzsche is actually talking about here. Uh, And by that we mean, there are the interpretation that I would put forward on this is something much more akin to that the God of the Western philosophical, philosophical tradition, the God who basically stands in the gaps. So in other words, the one who exists to, at the point at which we don't know what else to say. So at the point of mystery, that God is dead. In other words, we no longer have interest in the idea of God as a God who um, solves all of the problems and the answers uh, that we cannot come up with ourselves. In other words, what is he not saying? He is not suggesting that there that God does not exist. He's simply saying that the idea of God is no longer persuasive to the people and the time in which he lives. Now, here again, this is in a very, very idiosyncratic novel, Thus Spake Zarathustra. So, It's not even clear that this represents Nietzsche's own ideas, Uh, but we can be sure that what it is not is some kind of big claim that atheism is true or something like this. Uh, And even moreover, we might say that as, as Christians, this is actually not even bad. That is, the kind of cultural assumption that God is there to answer the questions and to fill in the gaps is not in any recognizable sense Christianity anyway. 
So that kind of civil Christianity, uh, doing away with that might be something that Christians could even affirm. So here again, I'm not saying that uh, Nietzsche's comment, God is dead, is necessarily a positive. However, it's also not nearly as uh, negative as it has been depicted in, in a popular sense. But of course, we can talk about this once we reconvene. The third issue that we need to discuss with Nietzsche is his notion of the ubermensch or the preparatory person. Preparatory person. This is on 127. And this is his second most famous concept, uh, which is why it's in this kind of hodgepodge of a collected volume, uh, because the ubermensch or the overman is the idea that there is a new sort of person coming into being. And that new sort of person is amoral. Now, I did not say immoral, that is contrary to morality, but rather amoral, by definition, beyond morality altogether. So the preparatory person is entirely free from so many of the constraints that Nietzsche believed that morality put, and particularly Christianity, put on people during his time. So we'll see at the about three quarters of the way down the page on 127, for believe me, the secret of the greatest fruitfulness and the greatest enjoyment of existence is live dangerously. Build your cities under Vesuvius. Send your ships into uncharted seas. Live at war with your peers and yourselves. Be robbers and conquerors as long as you cannot be rulers and owners, you lovers of knowledge. Soon the age will be past when you could be satisfied to live like shy deer hidden in the woods. At long last, the pursuit of knowledge will reach out for its due, and it will want to rule and own and you with it. And this plays upon a, an idea that we see also among the existentialists uh, regarding the herd. And the herd uh, is coined by Kierkegaard in particular, but others use it as well, which is the expectations of the crowd. So when we say things today like, don't conform to what other people expect of you. This is basically parroting uh, the existentialist line of the peer pressure of culture and society in coercing people to act in a certain way. So in contrast to the herd or the herd mentality, you have the individual and the height of this kind of philosophical individual we see in Nietzsche. So it is the one who acts boldly and pursues their will over against all others, no matter what anyone else might think. So even things that are dangerous, what does it matter? Uh, that is where greatness is found. Uh, and if it destroys you, guess what? You've lost nothing uh, other than just a long life that you probably would have wasted away anyway. So, or so, again, so goes the Nietzschean uh, idea. So you can see hopefully how this affects the way we think today. That is a radical sense of the individual, which we get not just from Nietzsche, but Nietzsche is its highest expression. We also see this idea of a working hypothesis of God. That is the assumption that God is kind of out there everywhere that we don't have perfect knowledge. Um, that the, This idea dying, uh, this will be the second thing that Nietzsche puts forward uh, that we see very uh, appropriately in action today. And thirdly, and finally, the idea of the preparatory person, the idea that uh, one should pursue one's own will, and particularly a will to power, 
no matter what anyone thinks. Uh, and this third one, we sh- I should be clear, is really contentious in part because it's also uh, something that the Nazis adopt. So when to the extent to which the Nazis are avid readers of Nietzsche, and there's a huge amount of debate about this, uh, they do so with a clear understanding of the overman or the superman or the ubermensch um, therein. So that uh, what at least some Nazi leaders thought is that they were the incarnation of Nietzsche's overman. That is, doing great things, daring great things with uh, little regard for what other people thought of them. So there is an enormously complex legacy that we see from uh, the stuff from Nietzsche. So uh, we will see this bear even more fruit once we get to postmodern philosophy, particularly because the idea that we are seeing both in Marx and Nietzsche is that uh, human life is reducible to effectively will and power, whether that's economic as in Marx or whether that's more existential in terms of Nietzsche. The idea is that you assert yourself over against the world uh, and let the world do with that what it wills. So uh, I hope this is again helpful. uh, And if it's not, by all means, send me questions over email and we will see you guys shortly. Thank you.